John chapter 7, 32 to 52, hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Irony describes a situation that turns out the opposite of what is expected. And uh, sometimes the examples of irony are funny because things turn out exactly the opposite. I, I know a town in Tennessee where the fire station burned to the ground. And th- that's tragic, but it's also humorous because that's exactly opposite. And so we would say that's ironic that it should burn to the ground. Or McDonald's had a an employee website that was trying to encourage healthy living among its employees and warned them against eating fast food. (laughs) That's funny because that's kind of exactly the opposite of what you would expect uh, McDonald's to be promoting. It's ironic that duct tape is a very bad way to seal ducts. It's not useful in the long term for doing that. It, uh, It was actually began as duct tape during World War II and it was green and then they adapted it and turned it silver but it's not a good way to seal ducts. Also it's ironic that the inventor of early traffic regulations, the inventor of the stop sign, the inventor of the taxi stand never learned how to 
drive, right? Uh, sometimes it's not funny. Sometimes it's tragic. General George Patton. He made it through World War I, and then he made it through World War II, and he had this tendency to lead from the front. And he died after injuries sustained from a minor traffic accident. Ironic, but tragic at the same time. There's a, a certain type of subcategory of irony called dramatic or theater irony. And that's when the players on stage or perhaps in the movie say something that is the opposite of the case and they're not in on it, but the audience is in on it. And the audience knows that the opposite is really the case. Now, this dramatic irony is something that the author of this fourth gospel loves to use. And we will see how he uses that with great effect to teach us about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit through this getting us in as the audience on the secret that the actors in the text don't know. They're saying more than they know by saying the opposite of the case. Now, um, this begins, we're actually falling into the middle of a, a conversation, because if you look back at the last verses that we saw last week, it, it says that, uh, they were seeking to arrest him in verse 30. No one laid a hand on him. His hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. And then they were reasoning when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, things were getting a bit out of hand. This was in the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Jerusalem was full of pilgrims from all over uh, the Middle East and, and in, uh, into the Mediterranean. And this was a dangerous situation for the religious leaders because people were muttering about Jesus. And some were muttering that He was the promised Messiah and reasoning that His signs were pointing to the fact that He was the Messiah. And so, uh, in light of the fact that many were believing in Him, now we, we know enough about the Gospel of John not to trust their belief because we see that many times those who believed in Him were superficial believers. But even so, this was getting out of hand for the leaders. And so we have an unusual uh, teamwork here. It says in verse 32, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The chief priests, well, these were the temple leaders. The Pharisees were the popular religious leaders, and these were two different parties in Judaism, and they were often in rivalry with each other. But when you have a common enemy, it sometimes brings rivals together, and that's what happened here. And so they took advantage of a resource that the, the, the uh, temple priests had, and that was the temple guard. They had their own temple guard, and the temple guard consisted of Levites. The priests were a subcategory of the tribe of Levi. The Levi was a, a category of Israel. It was one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so they had at their disposal the temple guard, and they sent this temple guard, Levites, to go arrest Jesus. Now, these Levites would have some discernment because they also would be trained in the law of Moses. They would not just be kind of hired thugs, to go arrest Jesus in a, a brutal manner, they would have discernment and they would be able to find the best opportunity to do so. And it looks like they were biding their time because last week we were in the middle of the feast 
And then we go to the end of the feast and they haven't yet done it. They're looking for the opportune moment where they can arrest Jesus without causing a riot among the people. Now, um, apparently when Jesus saw the temple guard coming, he knew what was up. And look at how he responds in verse 33. Jesus then said... I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, this works on a couple different levels, and the Gospel of John loves these these dual levels. He sees the temple guards coming, and he says, I'm leaving soon, and where I'm going, you won't be able to find me. And so, that could throw the temple guards off, couldn't it? They could say, well, then there's really no reason to do anything potentially dangerous here because he just said that he's going to leave and we won't be able to find him and then we will have this problem off our hands. Everything will be taken care of. So that's a a simple level that that could have put the guards off. Uh, But there's obviously a deeper level here because he's told us time and time again that the one who sent him is... The Father. And He's saying, I am going to go to the One who sent Me, and where I go, you will not be able to go, you will not be able to find Me, because I'm returning to Him who sent Me. He's returning to the Father. Now, in the Gospel of John, instruction advances on misunderstanding. And once again, they misunderstood. Verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? They had no idea what he was talking about, and so they came up with a a rather outlandish sort of idea. They mentioned going among the dispersion. Now, if we go back in the Old Testament, we find out that the people of God were divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The line of David continued in the south. Ten tribes in the north, uh, two tribes in the south. But these were both rebellious against the Lord, and so the Lord sent other nations against them. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and they conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And then in 586, between 601 and 586 B.C., uh, Babylonia came, and they conquered the southern tribes. And what happened was, there was a dispersion called the Diaspora of the Jews. They were taken to Babylon, they were sent here and there, and where they went, they began a movement that is with us to this day. They began establishing synagogues, places of instruction in the Old Testament. And so they came up with this this outlandish idea. Is he going to go among the dispersion and teach the Greeks? And the way the question is asked, it's asked in a way that expected a negative response. That is, the question goes like this. He's not going to go among the dispersion and teach the Greeks, is he? Now, This is the first example of dramatic irony we have here. Because the original readers of this this gospel were likely Greeks who lived in places that the dispersion had reached. And if we read 
the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, how do we find that the gospel went forth in the Roman Empire? It went forth through the synagogues that were in the dispersion, and ironically, it reached whom? Mostly. It reached some Jews, but it reached many, many Greeks. And so this is the first point at which the readers could say, could kind of wink, wink, We know that they thought this was outrageous and outlandish. That's how the gospel got to us. Through the apostles taking the word of Jesus out to the dispersion and teaching the Greeks. Now, um, Jesus then brings things to a head in verse 37. On the last day, the feast lasted seven or eight days. They, there was a sort of a, an extra day. It was a seven day feast, but then as tradition developed, there was an eighth day. It's not clear which of these days, probably the seventh, but it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, by the way, this is the second time it's cried out. Verse 28, he cried out. Verse 37, he cries out. John uses that to say, uh, to accent, to say, listen to this. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Have we heard something like this before? Those of us who have been in this series. Do you remember when Jesus was traveling between, between Judea and Galilee? He had to go through Samaria. And he was left by himself at a well, and a Samaritan woman came up, and he said, he said to her that he had living water that would quench her thirst. This is the second time we've heard this. But there's another connection here as well. And that is, there was a ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles, which we think was probably current in Jesus' day, and that was a water libation ceremony, a water pouring out ceremony. And so the priest would, would parade around, and at the end there would be this dramatic pouring out of water. And on that last day, that great day, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. In other words, I am the fulfillment of what you are witnessing here. Year after year after year, water being poured out that doesn't ultimately quench the human thirst. But if you come to me, your thirst will be quenched. And then he went on and said, whoever believes in me, that's the same as coming to me, believing to me, coming to me and drinking is believing in Jesus, dropping the metaphor. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the scholars are still searching for the Scripture that says that. Because there is no Old Testament Scripture that says that exactly. But there are many Scriptures, and this seems to be a summary statement of many Scriptures, that connect the pouring out of the Holy Spirit with water. And uh, giving that into the heart, into the inner being of those who believe. And that's what he says in verse 39. This, this is the author speaking now. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Now, I don't know if you noticed there was a shift here. Because Jesus said that He Himself is the source of this living water. And 
This living water quenches thirst. It satisfies the soul. It gives humans that for which we all ache and long most deeply. He will quench our thirst. He will give us satisfaction. And Jesus says, I am the fount of that satisfaction. What He's saying is, I am the one who gives the Holy Spirit. We already saw this, didn't we, when Jesus was baptized. John baptized with with water, but Jesus who received the Holy Spirit from His Father would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the source of this living water. Jesus is the source of this Spirit who would be poured out on all who believe in Jesus. But I want you to look at this verse. Verse 38 again, it says, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the scholars are divided about how to punctuate and how to decide who this His is. And there are some who want to say this is Jesus. Jesus is the source. But I think the arguments are on the side of this translation, which indicates that those who believe receive the Spirit and those who believe out of the inmost part of believers will flow these living waters. So Jesus is the source. In either of these interpretations, in either of these translations, Jesus is the source. But in this translation, which I think is to be preferred, the believers become what? Not merely recipients of the living water, but rather channels of the living water. In other words, we don't become the Dead Sea, we become the Sea of Galilee. If you look at the, the geography of, of Israel, we have the Sea of Galilee. And that's waters flow into the Sea of Galilee, but what else do they do? They flow out. Why? Because they have the Jordan River. But the Dead Sea <clears throat> is dead. Why? Because the waters flow in, but they don't flow out. And that's why you don't go fishing in the Dead Sea. That's why you go fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Where is there life? There is life where the Spirit is received and then that person becomes a channel of the Holy Spirit. What are, what are the evidences? And we will get later on. Jesus is going to talk in chapters 14, 15, 16 about the Holy Spirit. What are evidences of the, the Holy Spirit's present in a person's life? Well, there, there could be many evidences. Power, supernatural power. Sometimes amazing experiences. Certainly gifts that, that the Holy Spirit gives. Certainly the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all evidences of the Holy Spirit. But another way we could say this is, a test of the Holy Spirit in one's life is, are you life-giving? That which you have received, are you communicating that to others? That's what the Spirit does when the Spirit enters a person's life. Now, there is an unusual sort of statement here that, that seems surprising to us at first, because at the end of verse 39, it says... For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, this is a fine translation, but there's no... uh, In the original, we had to smooth it out in the translation, but the original, it doesn't say given. It just says, for as yet the Spirit was not... 
because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that sounds shocking to us, because we certainly know that the Spirit was, that He existed, from when? From the first verses of the Old Testament. The Spirit was hovering over the world. So, so it doesn't mean that He did not exist. He is eternal, because He is God. Um, and we also know that the Spirit was operative in the Old Testament. How did the prophets prophesy? By the Spirit. How did, how did the, the warriors do great exploits? Uh, by the power of the Spirit. How, do, how did uh, those who, who were able to, to serve the Lord in the face of persecution, how were they able to do that? It was by the work of the Spirit. And yet, and yet there is a, a decisive difference between the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the ministry of the Holy Spirit since the coming of Jesus. And we see that even the Old Testament prophesied this. If you look at Joel chapter 2, it says that in that day, God says, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And that's the difference. There were, there were manifestations of the Spirit's power and work in some, in a few in the Old Testament. And they were intermittent. But in the New Testament, the prophecy was that, that in that last day, as Peter says, in the last day, God would pour out His Spirit on, on all flesh, on all believers. Sons and daughters, old and young, would receive the Spirit. And we know that that's exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 2, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had died, after He had risen and ascended, the Spirit is poured out, not not trickled out, not dropped out, but the Spirit is, is poured out on God's people. Now, that couldn't happen yet. That couldn't happen yet because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Glorified. Now, he will explain more later, but we already have enough in the Gospel of John to know that Jesus' glorification begins when He is lifted up. And on what was He lifted up? He was lifted up on a cross. That's how Jesus began His glorification in the Gospel of John, by being lifted up on a Roman cross. And so the Spirit could not yet be given until Jesus began to be glorified, that is to say, until Jesus was crucified. Why is that the case? Why could the the Spirit not be poured out upon God's people until Jesus was crucified? Well, the answer is, first things first. In order for us to participate in the life of the Spirit, we first need for our sins to be forgiven. And how can we have our sins forgiven? Through Jesus being lifted up and crucified on the cross. Only then, when our sins are forgiven, can we begin to enter into the life of the Spirit so that life flows through us to others as well. Now, this is the end of Jesus' teaching here. And now we have the reactions in the rest of the text. Verse 40. And we have three different groups who reacted to this teaching. And we have the the people. We have those temple guards. 
and we have the religious leaders. And let's hear the different reactions. First, the people. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And we've seen the prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. There was an expectation that a prophet like Moses would come. And so some were saying, this is the prophet. Others said, no, this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the Christ. But then there was an objection in the crowd. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And this is the second time that John kind of winks at the audience. Because the audience would know, as they would have had contact with the other Gospels, that Jesus wasn't from Galilee that Jesus was from Judea and He was from the town of Bethlehem and He was from the line of David. A less artistic author would have inserted a parenthesis saying they didn't know what they were talking about. Jesus really was from Bethlehem. But instead He winks at the audience. And this is the dramatic irony here. They They were basing their objection on something that was the opposite of the case. But we know better. That Jesus really was from the line of David and the town of Bethlehem. That's the first group. The crowd, the people divided. The second group, those, those temple guards. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So it looks like only some of them. Something's happened with these temple guards. Some of them wanted to arrest him. Maybe others said the time's not right. Maybe others said, hey, he just said he's leaving. Let's just let him go and be done with him. But then there was something else that happened in them. They went back to the chief priests and Pharisees, empty-handed, and the chief priests and Pharisees said, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, this is another example of dramatic irony, because literally what they said is this. Never spoke this way a man. Never spoke this way a man. And if we have been reading along in the Gospel of John, we get the inside, not joke, but we get the inside comment. We know what? That Jesus is not, in fact, a mere man. And we understand why He spoke the way He did. And it's true that no mere man has ever spoken that way, and Jesus was no mere man. So they spoke more truth than they knew. And we're in on it. Now, the leaders responded with alarm, verging on panic. And when you begin to panic, you've panicked before, when you begin to panic... You say and do things that, that aren't, aren't the, the wisest course of action and aren't often accurate. And we find that here. They begin to panic in verse 47. Have you also been deceived? And the way they asked the question was, you haven't also been deceived, have you? So this was in the teeth of the, the guards, a challenge to them. And then, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? The way they asked it was, None of the authorities or Pharisees have believed in Him. 
Have they? So they're trying to, to circle the wagons here uh, to make sure that none of them have escaped. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for you. We, we're going to go on in John. But their alarm was justified, as we'll find out later, among the leaders. And then they began to abuse those ignorant people out there. Verse 49, the elites said, This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They don't know anything. We're the ones who know what's going on. Now this is ironic because the crowd was figuring things out, at least some of them, better than the leaders were. And then Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and Jesus confused him, perplexed him by saying, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. And, and Nicodemus went away scratching his head. And we, didn't, we don't know what became of Nicodemus until now. And he doesn't really defend Jesus here, but what he does is he raises a procedural objection. And he says, is it right for us to condemn a man without first hearing from him. And you will see here that they had their own sound jurisprudence, that they, they were in the custom of, of hearing from the accused before condemning them. And so Nicodemus simply raised a procedural objection, and they replied to him with more abuse. You're not from Galilee too, are you? And uh, those in Judea, and especially in Jerusalem, tended to to despise those rustics in Galilee. And so they they accused him of being something like a country bumpkin. You're not a country bumpkin too from Galilee, are you? And then they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, they were obviously upset and they begin to say things that were actually untrue. Um, But there's irony here because Jesus had already said to them back in chapter 5, you search the Scriptures, same word, you search the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, but they speak about me and you refuse to come to me. And now these Pharisees and leaders are saying, search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Now wait a minute, Jonah, where did Jonah come from? Jonah came from Galilee. So in their, in their panic, they begin to say things that were false. So at least Jonah and maybe other prophets arose from Galilee. And also, once again, we're in on uh, the information that Jesus wasn't originally from Galilee. And so even by their own standard, Jesus could qualify as the prophet or as the Messiah. But there's something more subtle here as well. Because they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In the Gospel of John, that word, which we've encountered a number of times already, almost always refers to the resurrection from the dead. And so once again, they were speaking more truth than they knew. They were saying, no prophet arises In Galilee. And in fact, that was true. Because Jesus, when He rose from the dead, did not arise in Galilee. He arose outside the gates 
of Jerusalem. So all through this text, people, Jesus' opponents, are speaking more truth about Him than they know. Indirectly, they declared Him to be divine. And indirectly, they declared Him to be the one born in Bethlehem, the Messiah. Indirectly, they declared Him to be the one who would die and rise again outside the gates of Jerusalem. Now, all of this, all of this increasingly tense interaction culminates in in what we could say is supreme irony, or maybe we could call it divine irony. What's What's the most ironic thing that has happened in the history of the world? That the Son of God, who became a man, would die. And that those who were most eagerly expecting Him would be the ones who rejected Him. And that through death would come living water and life to all who believe in Him. And that that the millions and millions who were not expecting Jesus would find Him. As His Gospel went out through the Diaspora, and even as far as Pompano Beach, Florida, with the good news that the Son of God has come, become one of us, died and risen from the dead, and gives life and His life-giving Spirit to all who will believe in Him. Let's pray. Our God, we find nothing like this as we search the teachings that humans have come up with, the philosophers and the religionists. This is out of this world because no man ever spoke like this. And we find in these words your teaching, something divine, something that we could never have conceived a plan of salvation that is based on the Son of God, the Son of Man dying for sinful people. But we thank You, O God, that You confound the wise through the Gospel, which is so simple and requires simply faith in Jesus. Nothing in our hands do we bring. Simply to the cross do we cling. Naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul we to the fountain fly, wash us, Savior, or we die. We come, O God, to Christ once again in faith for that thirst quencher, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. And we pray that through us would flow life to many others. And we pray this in His name. Amen.